Hi and welcome to a new episode of the Terragnostic Talks podcast, a podcast for healthcare professionals interested in the latest innovation within Terragnostics. I am Gustav Vidar and together with me in the studio in Stockholm, Lisa Grushi. Welcome back to the podcast, Lisa. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And very happy to continue doing the Theranostic part here. Yeah, last time we did it live in Amsterdam and now we are for the very first time doing this podcast from uh, our studio in the office in Stockholm. How does it feel, Lisa? I'm so excited, Gustav, and happy to join you here in the reactor in the Stockholm office. Yeah, the reactor is the name of the office and nothing else. Um, Hey, Lisa, what's the topic of today? Well, you know, Gustav, everybody in the scientific community knows of PSMA. However, hardly no centers in Europe are ready for implementation of theranostics in a larger uh, patient population. So how do centers become ready and how do we secure patients having access to this new type of treatment? To answer that question, we have invited Lucy Morgan from Health Policy Partnership to answer the question and give us her view on what's needed. Perfect. Welcome, Lucy Morgan. How are things in London today? Good. It's surprisingly warm for this time of year, but it's good. (laughs) How are things in Stockholm? It's good. It's not that warm, but I would say it's typical (laughs) uh, November weather, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, Lucy, Ah. um, tell us a little bit of, of your background. Absolutely. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. I'm yeah, really excited to be talking to you both today. Um, so I am Associate Director of Research and Policy here at the Health Policy Partnership. Um, we have a big program of work on radioligand therapy, looking at what does an entire health system need to get ready for radioligand therapy. Um, it's, yeah, it's a really exciting project, um, but my background was before this in developing patient reported outcomes. So I've got some clinical trial knowledge, and then now I'm looking at health policy on a, a system level. Cool. And, and can you tell us a little bit more, more about the uh, health policy partnership organization? What are you doing? What's, what's the organization? Absolutely. So the health policy partnership, as the name suggests, is a health policy consultancy. We specialize in doing research, um, bringing together experts from all different backgrounds uh, to create really evidence-based consensus-driven policy recommendations. And our our main purpose is really to change the way that people think about healthcare and thereby change healthcare by giving them new perspectives, um, by helping them talk to people that they might not otherwise interact with. Um, And we're really focused on making sure that our work can help sort of influence change. We we don't want to just do research for the sake of research. We want to make sure it can have an impact. And that's what we'll talk about today. Yes, because Lucy, you have been working with <coughs> ILT and Theranostic Awareness, making policy reports for both the UK and the US. So what is the current state of RLT Theranostic Awareness right now, as you see it? I, at the moment, um, people are becoming more aware of it, but I think it really depends what areas you're talking about and what groups of people you're talking about. Um, So I think up until quite recently, uh, theranostics and radioligand therapy were only really known within the nuclear medicine community and then also within the neuroendocrine cancer communities, um, with that being, you know, one of the key areas where they they were used. Um, 
But I think as, you know, there have been more trials in other areas, um, different sort of oncology professionals have started getting involved. There is increasing awareness of radioligand therapy. But I think there's still a long way to go for healthcare professionals outside of the nuclear medicine profession to understand some of the, the details of radioligand therapy and also for policymakers and, and other patients who aren't necessarily, uh, weren't, uh, weren't able to receive the therapy before. Are there, are there any major differences or maybe similarities uh, from working within the UK and the US when you did this work? Yes, absolutely. I think it comes down to how the entire health systems are just structured very differently. Um, so obviously the UK is a much smaller health system and I think there is much better integration and communication between different systems because it's all governed within And so there's a bit a bit more interoperability that can sort of happen there. Um, on the flip side, the US just being so much bigger, um, having so many different uh, centers, different types of centers, etc. It can be a bit harder for those connections to be made. Um, that's, I think, one of the main differences that we found in our research. And that's not to say that the US and the UK are uh, on unequal footing. It's just that they have different different challenges, right? Having a more cohesive system is great in some ways, but it actually means if there's, say, an issue in a reimbursement or commissioning, that affects everyone. Whereas in the US, the slightly more disaggregated reimbursement funding system means that people might be able to get access in a bit more of a patchwork way. Um, so drawbacks and uh, benefits to both. Uh, let's try to be a little bit practical and elaborate what's what's need to be done uh, on a country level and maybe on a hospital level. Um, uh, let's start with the big thing. So let's start with a country level or maybe EU level or a national level, whatever. Uh, based on your experience, what is the uh, what would you say is the big headlines that needs to be done on a country level for? <laughs> Diagnostic awareness or RLT awareness is more or less the same word, but yeah. I think um, if we're thinking at that pan-national level, mm. we need awareness and inclusion of innovative technologies in national and pan-national plans, right? When we think about, say, the EU beating cancer plan, we need to be thinking about, okay, how does innovation fit into this? And specifically RLT, right? How do we incorporate new therapies that use nuclear energy and nuclear material. Um, and that needs to be included at that at that top level because without that um, direction from the top, a lot of the efforts that are grassroots, which are, are doing wonderful things, you know, there are, is a lot of bottom-up work, mm. but you're constantly fighting against something that wasn't built for you. Mm. So you've got to build it in at the big level. What's lacking? Um, I mean, to get there, you do need awareness. It comes back to my initial point. If policymakers, um, MEPs, uh, leaders in the overarching sort of health system planning don't even know that radioligand therapy exists, how are they going to how are they going to include it? How are they going to plan for it? Um, but I do have to acknowledge they're dealing with so much else, and quite frankly, the European healthcare system, all the systems that make it up are so stretched right now for capacity that everyone's working within a pretty a pretty limited range anyway. When we discuss now <clears throat> the country level and what's needed there, 
what if you are a physician or maybe a patient advocacy uh, listening to this podcast? Uh, what's needed uh, for them to do at their local hospital or even in their local community? What do they need to focus on and how should they approach uh, awareness of diagnostics and RLT? So I think there's different ways that people can get involved. And in our research, what we did is we took a sort of systems approach. So we said, what are the different areas of the health system um, and what needs to change in each of them? And so I talked just now about sort of like the governance, the overarching structure. Um, and individuals can get involved in that, right, by speaking to policymakers, by raising awareness, asking questions to their local politicians, et cetera. Um, but they can also get involved in the other four areas that I've talked about um, or that we researched on. So the first one is uh, data collection. Um, it's really important when we're planning for these new therapies to know sort of what's going on with them. I'm talking clinical trial data, but also real world data, patient reported outcomes. Um, and I think generally anyone involved in the health system can ensure that this data is being collected, either advocating for it to be collected or within their own clinical practice saying, hey, I'm going to deliver this therapy. Should I be also collecting you know, patient reported outcomes? Am I making sure that the records that my hospital is keeping are, are sufficient to sort of port wider, um, wider awareness and availability? Uh, so you can make changes there. Um, you can, especially I think from the patient voice, you can share your own experiences of that. I know there's been a lot of work done, um, advocates in the UK and Ireland who speak to regulators about their experience of receiving treatment. And that, that patient data is so valuable. So even just sharing that is really useful. So that's what people can do in terms of data. Um, another area is in terms of service delivery. Uh, and when we're talking about this, we're thinking about workforce, um, we're thinking about the capacity of the workforce. Um, and so there's a lot that obviously physicians can do there just themselves, you know, people getting into the into the field can learn about radioligand therapy. Um, and again, advocate for increased workforce for reducing sort of shortages um, and also supporting training programs um, for individuals coming up. There's uh, there was a training program in the UK to help radiologists convert to nuclear medicine. Um, you know, being involved in developing those training programs as a nuclear medicine physician, so that you know that these individuals who are, you know, going to develop the skill sets that you have, that they're learning the right things. Mm. Um, we, we have talked about diagnosticians in this podcast before. Maybe we actually need a new speciality or a combination of specialities. Maybe you need to be a, a nuclear medicine urologist or a nuclear medicine oncologist or diagnosticians that yeah. Rodney Hicks told us. <laughs> yeah, continue, Lucy. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think you're, no, I think you're perfectly right. I think saying, you know, we need to think about new ways of working with what we've got because we don't have a huge amount right now. And if we're going to make sure that everyone can benefit from these therapies, we need to start thinking creatively and we need to start working together as well. Like we need to continue to build those bridges. Um, and that comes into um, an, an aspect again of, of service delivery of um, making sure that we are um, working together, that there are clear care pathways, um, that there are good multidisciplinary team meetings um, and that the systems are set up to support those, right? If you're in a really big country and actually there aren't enough nuclear medicine physicians, 
maybe try having virtual MDTs to build that in. I know in some ways COVID has helped us work towards that. And that's not a simple solution. None of these things are, are simple. I'm not saying, oh, just go and do that. You know, patients receiving radio ligand have a lot going on. Healthcare professionals are obviously incredibly busy. Um, but I think there's little steps you can do in each of these areas that actually all add up and do have an impact. Yeah, <laughs> where should we start? Maybe that's a very big question. But but we have a like bit of it's a hina egg situation. Uh, who comes first? Because yeah, awareness. We need a bigger workforce. We need to train. Where should we start? Because that will come for money in the healthcare system as well. We need to train more staff. We need more staff. But but we need we need to train them. Ah, where should we start? <laughs> Yeah, it's it is a chicken and egg situation, and it it comes down to like how do we solve some of the healthcare crises that we have now? And I genuinely think what needs to happen is different people need to be working in different areas because it is a chicken and egg situation. And if we don't have more workforce, then we won't have enough um, support for the expected growth in demand. But if we won't don't have awareness, then we won't have that demand. And I think you need people pushing on both those buttons. So I would say, choose the one that's most important to you. Choose the one that you say, okay, I know about this. I know about how to raise awareness patients. Mm. So I'm going to go and create patient materials. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk to my colleague who knows a lot about um, speaking to um, politicians about getting more funding for workforce. Mm. And we're going to make sure that the work we're independently doing, we're also supporting together. Does that make sense? A lot of sense, <clears throat> but, <clears throat> but but these policy reports <clears throat> are really important and and actually has the the focus that is really good. But what's the next step in integrating them? So diagnostic awareness uh, and having a successful implementation also of this new kind of therapy. Yeah, um, I really think so. You have to be aware of the situation to create those policy reports. You have to make them. And then you have to find the, the trigger points, I'd almost call them. Who is going to be able to change? Um, and I can speak to our UK example just briefly now. We know that in the UK, it's going to be the operational delivery networks that are responsible for delivering radioligand therapy. So uh, it's taking those recommendations and those actions to the operational delivery networks so that they can plan their health systems around um, around radioligand therapy. And that I do, they're going to be, I think in a very great way, the middle level between the sort of service delivery on a hospital basis and government organizations at the big level. So they can guide down and influence up. And it's, it's finding those people and, and talking to them and making sure that they know what's needed. Did you did you manage to identify these uh, people in the UK and are they are they working towards so that goal? We're actually at the so we did all this this policy work we generated these reports um, and off the back of that and a bunch of other wonderful work that has been happening in the UK um, by the British Nuclear Medicine Society the Royal College of Radiologists um, the National Institute of Health Research their CT Rad working group. Um, There's been a whole bunch of groups saying we need to get ready. Um, and off the back of all of that, there's now a U radio ligand therapy uh, consortium. Um, they're called the UK Molecular Radiotherapy Consortium because terminology across the world is varied. Um, but 
they include a lot of the operational delivery network leads. Um, and so there is now that movement and there's a lot of uh, sort of very practical gap analysis work being done in those operational delivery networks um, and changes being made within them, uh, which is really, really great to see. Uh, now we're talking about the organizations and healthcare system. Uh, do we need to make awareness for patients? Uh, maybe patients could be a little bit afraid having radioactive drugs if they're not educated about it, putting something in your body that actually is radioactive. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think we do need to. It's about increasing awareness amongst patients of what the therapy actually entails. I, I, we have sort of patient advocates on our advisory groups that have informed all of this work. Um, and they have given so many touching, but also heart-wrenching examples of people, you know, receiving therapy and not, not knowing when they're okay to go and sleep in the same bed as their partner. Um, you know, and, and I know there are regulations on this, but I don't think that that communication always gets across to patients. And, and that's understandable, right? They're in a, a stressful situation. They're receiving therapy for cancer. It, there's a lot going on and I think we as healthcare professionals and we as a community that's supporting patients need to do more to create that sort of patient-friendly material um, and that is actually it's one of the sort of next steps from our work last year is we're developing a, a patient advocacy toolkit includes some sort of simple explanations of what is radioligand therapy um, what are some common questions that people ask about it um, and kind of explain it in in hopefully a really accessible way. Um, and we've been really, really appreciative of all the experts that have fed into that um, as well. You have already finalized this RLT framework forever bound to access. So I think you can, can find it on, on your website or where, where can you find it? Yes, yeah, you can find it on our website. I think our website right now is healthsystemreadiness.com forward slash radioligand. Yeah, we can put that into our uh, uh, text for the bio for, the, for this podcast. Uh, and soon you are about to publish the Radio Legend Therapy Hub. Tell us more about that. Yes, so that's a really exciting initiative. I think, you know, I said before, what we need to do is go and do these individual things and then talk to each other. Um, in the work we were doing, we were hearing so many examples of people doing wonderful work to get ready for Radio Legend Therapy. Um, there's, you know, courses being developed, there's guides for setting up centers, uh, there's policy roundtables. Um, but we realized that it wasn't always, people weren't always able to communicate about these ideas. So what the Radio Ligand Therapy Readiness Hub is, is it's a collection of examples of great work that people are doing to get ready for Radio Ligand Therapy. Um, and by putting that online in an easily accessible place, we're hoping that people can learn from what's been done elsewhere and either do those, you know, partake in those activities. So use the resources that are available or use and adapt them for their own context. So they're not having to reinvent the wheel. They're not having to start from scratch. They can get great ideas and take advantage of all the really hard work that's already been done. So a Theranostic readiness toolbox available on your um, website soon. Yes, exactly. We are launching it on the 17th of November um, in association with an event. We're really excited. We're going to have some great speakers uh, talking about some of the examples that they've done um, and then hope, sort of learning from each other as well, um, demonstrating hopefully in action what that kind of shared learning can, can bring. I'm curious. Give us some examples. Is this just a few days after we will release this podcast? 
Yes. Uh, so what we'll be doing is we'll be we're going to have talking about the uh, ASTRO, the American Society of Radiation Oncology. They developed a radiopharmaceutical pathway in 2020. So um, someone who is involved in that is going to be speaking. Um, you'll be aware of potentially the SNMMI Centers of Excellence. We're hoping to have someone who's been involved in that speaking. Um, and then some of the European initiatives as well, obviously, um, the ESMO and EANM uh, course on uh, theranostics and, and that course uh, highlighting that, as well as the EANM, IAEA, and SNMMI Joint Guide on the Theranostics Center. So those are, those are some of the examples. Um, we've have some great examples from Australia as well. There's some really fantastic work going on there, but time zones don't necessarily work for a live event. <laughs> Probably not. But please remember to invite us. We would like to participate at least. Thank you, Lucy. Very interesting to to listen to your the job you have to you have done. Uh, you have a lot, done a lot of work. I can imagine. Um, maybe the last question: Who do you think we should invite to the podcast? Oh, I knew this was coming and I still didn't think of an answer. Oh no, and you've interviewed so many people that we work with as well. Um, I, I think it would be fantastic to have the perspective of a, a patient advocate. Um, mm -hmm. in, and I think especially some of the people that we work with um, have talked about difficulties in getting access um, in countries outside of Europe. and. Uh, Sort of regulatory barriers, etc., mm -hmm. um, beyond Europe. That might be really interesting um, to hear some perspectives from that direction. Thank you, Lucy, uh, and thank you for today, and thank you for uh, joining our podcast. Uh, thank you, Lisa, for joining me as well in the studio. Thank you, Costa. Uh, if <laughs> thank you, you both so much for having me. <laughs> uh, if you want to reach out to us, please send us an email at podcast at samnordic.se. Stay safe, stay tuned. Bye bye.